Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights, the podcast for the CyberEd.io learning community. Our goal is to bring cybersecurity practitioners the latest and most relevant education and training to upskill and dive deeper into topics that matter in today's modern cybersecurity world. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director at CyberEd.io and on today's podcast, uh, I'm joined by Dan DeSantis and Pam Lindemann, who are part of the CISO advisory crew at Cisco. Uh, Dan is the director of the Americas version, I believe, of that. And Pam is uh, works with Dan as a chief information security officer in that group. And on today's podcast, we're, we're going to discuss the impact on CISOs with the advent of generative AI and you know amazing market dominance since uh, since product GA was <laughs> six months ago or something insane like that, there must be a hundred million concurrent users. That that may be an understatement. I don't know. So welcome both of you guys and thanks for thanks for joining me today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Steve. Sure. So talk to our audience about the difference between generative AI. And discriminative AI in, uh, in in on the defensive side of cybersecurity. In other words, we see a lot of bad actors using generative AI in their attack vectors, and we know that there's probably good use cases for generative AI on the defense side. But I haven't personally seen any in a in a production mode. So. Maybe you guys could share your insights uh, and and view of that for us. Well, so Steve, again, thanks for the tee up um, team that we run here, uh, the Cisco Advisors team. We we have the luxury of running all over the place and hosting uh, wonderful dinners uh, as a part of our Cisco Connections efforts with um, Cisco's. And I have to say that the AI topic continues to be top of mind um, everywhere we go. It's it's right up there with things like third party risk, uh, talent acquisition, liability, all that fun stuff. Um, and so, I, I find it interesting. I mean, I, I think obviously the the, the sea change that's happened that's happened rather has been the democratization of AI. Um, and this is the point you're talking about with generative is is now it's it's out there and it, it could be leveraged to expedite malfeasance. And I, and I think what we're going to see just on, on that front, at least the in, initial take on it is, this is from our Talos team, uh, our intelligence team here at Cisco, is is that we're going to see refinement of things like phishing attacks, right? We'll see that uh, email that's crafted by the Nigerian prince or whoever whoever he is that's asking for money. It's probably not going to be broken English. It's probably going to be more tailored. Um, it will probably scrape from social media. Another interesting tidbits, and, and it will leverage the capabilities of the LLMs to uh, make it a bit more targeted and honed, more believable, in short. And so I, I think that's right out of the gate one of the things that you know we're already seeing that. The we I would really divide this conversation into three core areas in terms of what we're talking to sisters about. The first is Concerns around what I just described, that is threat actors leveraging AI to make more effective attacks and automate those attacks and 
uh, perhaps an emerging class of, of hackers that didn't really have the coding chops to build a lot of the malware or command and control infrastructure or what have you, you know, sort of giving them confidence in a way that they didn't have confidence before because they didn't have the skill set that AI can replace, quite frankly. So I think there's that element of it. To be clear, and I think everybody that listens to this knows this, AI has been used for a long time on both sides of the fence, right? Uh, so so it's, it's, it's just, it's changed because of the democratization of it. The second bucket is, I think, the, or the second topic or area that we're talking about pertains to um, how it can be used for defense. And that really kind of divides into two or two areas, one of which is, can AI help my SOC team or my threat intel team be more effective at interpreting the massive data sets of telemetry that they're acquiring from various sources? And I think the answer to that is an unequivocal yes. And, and I would say that that capability is has been around for a bit. It's It's going to evolve quickly again. Um, in, in light of some of these new AI capabilities and some of the emerging companies that are leveraging it. But I, I don't know that I'd go so far as to, I heard one CISO say at a recent meeting that, you know, he believes that AI, generative AI is going to replace SOAR. Um, I'm not sure I would go that far, uh, but I think it is fair to say that AI is going to take a more prominent role in uh, security orchestration automation. And because it, it, we all know this, it's just there's not enough talent and there's too much data. The, the third and final area that I'll comment on, and then I'll hand over to Pam, is that um, the other sort of topic of conversation is um, you know putting guardrails around this, right? Um, and um, it's it's how, how do I know that the LLMs aren't being misappropriated? Um, information isn't being injected into them. They aren't being manipulated. How do I make sure that uh, PII, EPHI, consumer data? Um, intellectual property isn't being put into um, the the uh, uh, LLMs. So you know, having that degree of control uh, for CISOs and those who have to police that data, for lack of better terms, that's an area of concern, right? Because um, any of the technologies, and by the way, Cisco's investing in some of those with our VC arm to police that are still nascent. And there's some good companies out there in that space uh, that are are helping to put guardrails up around that, but um, it's still very early phase. So those are the three big topics that we're hitting on. Uh, Pam, what are you seeing? Yeah, I would say my worries and um, like-minded CISOs, you know, typically agree. Generative AI is you got to worry about deep fakes. So you know, training people to understand what that means in your environment, even like the layman's in the world, like your family should have a safe word these days um, because deep fakes are going to get harder and harder to see through phishing, phishing and spam. That's, that's another area. And then data manipulation under generative AI, thinking that synthetic data might be real data. And when, when that subtle change and is, is not managed very well, like, those guardrails aren't there like you were talking about, Dan. I think we can get into some serious, serious issues in that space. Other AI, I think, you know, we, you know, we've been working towards, you know, what what is that doing for us and to us long term? Um, when I think about AI, I think of it in the sense that we need diverse thought, we need guardrails, and we need to go responsibly and thoughtfully in this space. 
And that's why I, I think Dan said it best. The way Cisco approaches this is something that's near and dear to my heart. And they're they're cautiously moving towards, you know, what does that look like? Where do we put AI? Where are we using it? Where are we leveraging it? We're making sure that we're thinking through that appropriately. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, that thoughtfulness and caution are called for. The only problem with that is that while, you know, it, caution and thoughtfulness sometimes take a while to get to where you're going. In the meantime, these people are like blasting ahead. You know, I mean, I've never I've never seen a, a personally never seen a uh, an arc that is this that has been this steep to get to you know, whatever it is, a billion users, essentially, uh, overnight, I mean, you know, it was only, I mean, if they if they released in November, no one knew about it until January, people were talking about it in March, all of a sudden, it's everywhere in April, you know, so it's only been really a handful of months before folks got their kind of got their yeah. mit mitts on it, you know, so um, I, that's what, I think it's really important to call out that you've got to, you know, that's, that's part of the whole third party risk in my mind. Like who do you do business with and making sure that they're, they have ethical AI practices and that they're trained to, to ensure that their products are being built with that in mind. So it's something to really think through your portfolio, in my opinion. Indeed. And uh, you know, it's uh, that that's one of the, Big downsides here, it seems to me. I mean, not only have we expanded the threat landscape by whatever it is, 10x, um, but we now have serious trust issues across the board. I mean, who do you, how do you believe and who do you believe? You know, so it's a, yeah, it's a uh, sticky problem, I would say. No, I mean, the, um, if you compare the, upsides while we're to your point if you put compare the upsides of the opportunities to the downsides of the of the threats that are uh, uh, sort of released by generative ai what's your take on 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 the net you know on the net outcome i stay um practically scared um <laughs> there you go and so I try not to freak myself out, but I can tell you, like, even with my family, I've created this concept of, you know, a safe word because it's just the reality we live in and you're not going to stop it. You've got to embrace it um, and you've got to really build your teams around you that understand it. So that's that's my take is it's scary, but it's, it's, it's happening. And so ignoring it and put your head, putting your head in the sand is not going to help you. Um, so that, that, that characterization has been our sort of standard posture for several years now. Yeah, but, and you're right. And I, I, I come at this, you know, shamefully uh, responsible for the education program over here, but uh, it seems to me that, you know, when I talk to folks about security awareness and the way that we delivered uh, at cyber ed i still get this sort of blank stare that's kind of says well you know we don't have the budget for whatever when is that going to change when are people going to do what you just did you know say hey you know it's time it's time we have to we have to figure it out because the number i saw i think is yesterday somebody did a survey and it was 1100 companies and i think the number was 62 percent of department heads agreed that they had been quote, 
experimenting around with uh, generative AI. And 80% of them said they hadn't told their bosses because they didn't want to disclose that. So one of the threats that you know we see over here is that whole uh, shadow IT problem. Can you you you've been in this space and industry for quite a while, Pam? Can you talk directly to that from a you know from an ex custodial point of view? Yeah, I think you know we, we've when you're in an IT department, um, shadow IT is a constant issue if you're not embracing technology that your stakeholders want to leverage. So it's 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 really a, an art to balance that. And there's really no silver bullet there. It's a lot about education and understanding risk, the risk of your organization and how you manage to that risk and what you're willing to take on. So for me, it, it, it's really a stakeholder discussion about the risk, and you can you can either say no, and they'll they'll definitely find ways to go around you, or you can work with your stakeholders to have a win win scenario where they understand the full scope of the technology they're embracing and what it means to the organization. Yeah, that that seems like the reasonable approach for sure we also you know and this goes to both you guys that we also have um congress running around acting as if they understand what they're doing and and talking about legislation and you know getting there's a part of congress that seems to want to think that you know pollyanna's alive and well and that people are going to say yeah, yeah yeah we'll take care of it and of course that's what the big tech just got through saying was don't worry about it we'll take care of it but is it, is it even possible in your mind that anybody could craft legislation that would do what they think they want to do here and and actually make you know somehow make generative AI safe? I think this is not just a regulatory requirement; it is an ethical requirement too. And so I've I've heard a lot of. Thought leaders talk about this and how they feel about it, what they think, and why we have to have reg regulations around this. And so, I think it's going to take some time for the re regu regulations to catch up with what's going on right now. They will, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't act responsibly right now when when it's in use. And I think that means that we need to have an open communication with our business units, with real world examples, case studies of, of incidents that have happened. And I think we need to clearly outline the risk and the data privacy concerns around these decisions within your organizations. Like you've just got to understand what that could mean. And then if you think about if you're coding, right, and, you're, and you're, your intellectual property is is generating code and is there malware already present in it? And are you proliferating that and who is responsible there? I mean, it just, there's just a, a conversation you can, like I said, you could go down a rabbit hole, but that's why you have to have a strong security organization to articulate the risk in the space. And I would say even privacy and ethical leadership in your organization to help you determine 
if you are going down the right path in terms of how you're approaching this and how your your business is leveraging this type of technology. Yeah, you know, I I mean, so there's a kind of in the vein of these questions, Steve. Um, one of my favorite movies is Midnight Run, and Charles Grodin, Robert De Niro, and Charles <laughs> Grodin says to Robert De Niro, "There's good and bad everywhere, don't you think?" And then uh, De Niro looks at him and says, uh, "Well, I'd say there's bad everywhere, but you know, good I don't know about." Um, <laughs> right. So right. a bit more pessimistic. Having said that. To reference another movie, I just saw Oppenheimer. And not, while I'm not drawing a parallel between the atomic bomb and AI, I think there are some interesting intellectual and philosophical parallels. And, uh, you know, especially if you look at the father of the hydrogen bomb, Edward Teller, a lot of the research he did contributed towards, you know, building, building uh, nuclear reactors that could be used in medical research and uh, helping patients. And so a lot of the fruits of the Manhattan Project actually ended up benefiting humankind. But a lot of what happened as a result of the Manhattan Project, which we haven't necessarily had the equivalent of that with AI, was the advent of the Atomic Energy Commission. Right. And and and, you know, the, the having a regulatory environment around such a powerful capability that had the potential to, quite frankly, destroy the world and i'm not saying ai is going to do that but what we do know i think pretty solidly is is that ai has the potential to disrupt things substantially and it's only going to grow so you know i i think it's um i, I think i agree with pam there's a legal's got to be involved regulate you know government's got to be involved there's got to be regulation here there's got to be a very strong moral compass around this um, and, um, there's gotta be, um, this notion of due care that I learned many years ago when I got my CISSP, due care takes on a whole new meeting now. It's not just due care of intellectual property and source code, um, and other things. It's due care of, of, you know, building these AI models that could potentially become self-aware, right? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, I think you, you nailed a huge part of it issue here. And of course, while we're being ethical and moral and struggling with all of that, I don't think the Chinese are really giving a hoot one way or the other here. I think they're going to continue to do what they're going to do. And that's, of course, the the bugaboo in this whole thing is that whatever legislation we end up passing is going to be ignored by, you know, the rest of the rest of the global leadership crew who yeah. are going to do whatever they want, you know, and we yeah. aren't, you know, we're not at we're not at cyber war with Brazil. Yet <laughs> we're, we're at cyber war with the Russians and then North Koreans and you know China and Iran and those guys aren't too big on legislation. So, well, I, I think any any hackers like that's that's the thing they don't have to worry about patching and keeping a compliant environment. They're focused on hacking for whatever reason, whether it's making money or espionage, whatever it is, we do. And that, that's that's a part of our role is to make sure that we're compliant. And this is no different. We, we have to really address specific stakeholder needs. And we have to, you know, we're in security. We have to explain the risk to our organizations and we have to be transparent with them. And we really should foster that open dialogue and maintain transparency throughout the whole process so that our businesses can run and adopt 
great technology, but with risk in mind. And, and what's that trade-off? There are trade-offs and it's our job to express those trade-offs when, when asked. And, and potentially there, there could be some grave straight trade-offs in, in this space. Oh, Pam, I think you just nail it right on the head here. It's a, the real opportunity from my point of view is for the is for the CISO community or the senior practitioner professional, however you want to characterize that individual. We can this the advent of GAI gives us a chance finally to go to to uh, address the C-suite and the board level and say, guys, you know, you need to. And duty of care is a big part of this, huge part, Dan. It's a great point because you know we, we you now have this responsibility, and so you know I think it's going to change the game and it's going to elevate the game. Uh, when I say game, I mean the business of being a CISO and being the person in the organization who's got the uh, responsibility and accountability for. Uh, what's about to go on here. So, you know, this is, uh, so it's good in a way that it's such a significant game changer. It's not just another threat vector. It's not just, you know, you know, somebody figuring out how to crack the endpoint security puzzle, you know what I mean? So, um, or break into a firewall or, you know, it's way beyond, way, way, way beyond that. And speaking of that, as long as we're looking at the more positive side, what are, what is the one potential use case that each of you guys think will will have the biggest impact on the labor markets? Uh, because people are all worried, you know, oh my God, my job's going to go away. What's the one that, that you guys think about or that comes to mind for you? You know, I'm not hearing, oh, my job's going to go away. I'm hearing, oh, wow, this could help us really on the detection side and speed up some of that uh work that's very difficult to manage with human resources. So, you know, I, I see it in a, in a different light, like how can we repurpose individuals that were, you know, leveraging process work. If we think about it, like uh, over time, technology has helped us with that, you know, and has helped us be better at our positions because of technology. So I see it as, you know, really speed, and evaluation of the in the detection space. Dan, mm -hmm. I don't know if you have anything different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so I mean, I think the uh, yeah, it's interesting. I had, I hosted a dinner the other night uh, in Boston and um, had had a number of CISOs there. Uh, one of whom uh, was uh, was in the federal government for many years, and he made a reference back to uh, before word processing, before computer technology. You know, there 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 were a bunch of there were a bunch of clerical people that you know would literally their whole responsibility i mean hundreds hundreds if not thousands of them who were responsible for you know typing mundane it was mundane work around typing memos and other such things for you know various officials in the government um and um many of them went away when computers and word processing came along and there were a lot of efficiencies gained there, but, you know, did they just go away? Did they disappear into the ether? Did they take on other jobs? Did they move into other domains? But I think that's always a question about any evolution of technology that, you know, we all fear is going to replace us humans. I think there are certain things like writing basic copy. Uh, I mean, I think journalism and a lot of copywriting will, will evolve. Um, and um, that doesn't mean humans are going to be removed from the equation. 
you know, for me, um, and I, you know, to echo Pam, uh, what I'm hearing mostly in the security circles is, is that it's going to make our lives easier. I think it's, it's like there's, there's almost this welcome, oh, my gosh, I mean, I can't get talent fast enough, and I'm dealing with all this noise, and I can't separate the signal. If AI can help me separate the signal more quickly, then that's huge, right? Um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't leave I don't know where we're going from here, Steve, but I, I wanted to get this positive thought out there. If AI, if AI helps us cure cancer, if it helps medical researchers focus more of their time and energy on less mundane tasks and higher level thinking to help get us to something that's going to help humanity, then, dear Lord, bring it on, right? Absolutely. And you're, yeah, you're yeah, spot on. I agree. It's, uh, I, I look at, I'm kind of a glass half full guy anyway. So I always look at the upside and think this is fantastic for a whole bunch of great reasons. And now if we just, you know, had some strong leadership in various places, it would be even better. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, I don't want to leave the AI conversation entirely, but uh, I'm also conscious of the time, but talk to me about the future of you guys are in the network security business, right? So tell me about the future of network security, if you will, for a, a little bit. Okay. Um, well, so um, we we are, I mean, I think the network as we know it has evolved significantly. And, you know, a, a lot of the, everybody's running around talking about the cloud and hybrid work. And so, you know, the network isn't what it used to be. And, and I think Cisco's kept pace with that, with a lot of our investment strategy you know, we've we've really leaned heavily into software, software that's portable that can run in various environments, whether they're the cloud or traditional infrastructure. So, you know, in my mind, and I'm going to try to channel my inner sort of CISO, if if you will, here, that would be as long as network security companies can ensure that the controls that help me protect data, which I think is 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 really the new identity and um, allow me to ultimately ensure that it's not being misappropriated uh, irrespective of wherever that data resides, then, you know, network security companies or security companies in general need to um, need to be able to support that use case. And, you know, that's a big focus for us here is, is, and the reason why we've pivoted hard to software and pivoted hard to the cloud is because we want those controls to keep pace with wherever the data is residing, where the applications are residing. And, and I think the, the last thing I would say on that in terms of crystal ball perspective is that wherever the, wherever the network is, there's a rich data set that lives within that environment. And you know, Cisco's always taken the position that that data set shouldn't be just used for network optimization or application optimization. That data set should be used for other use cases like identifying uh, security threats and reducing risk. So whether it's the stuff that companies like Cisco are building organically or incubating or through some of our investment strategy, uh, the evolution of network security needs to encompass all of those potential environments. Um, If it's on-premise, if it's at your house, if it's in Google or Azure or what have you, we need to make sure that we're applying a systematic control infrastructure uh, that's um, ideally easy to manage. Pam, what are your thoughts? Well, 
I consider us more than a network security company. And that's the reason that I came to Cisco. A couple of years ago, well, actually quite a few years ago, I was really frustrated with the portfolio of what we were managing. Um, and I wanted I wanted to be a part of the solution to that, you know, big, huge security problem. And one of the reasons I chose Cisco is they were positioned well. They have more than network security. I mean, if you think about our portfolio, it expands the gamut, including threat intelligence and incident response. And what I would say, and what I what I tell people about why I'm here and why Cisco is right for me personally, is that I wanted to go somewhere where people were solving very complicated problems for their customers. And, and that's, to me, looking at the security problem holistically. And if you hear some people inside of Cisco, they'll tell you point blank, we're, we're a software company, we're a technology company that just so happens to be solving some of the most complicated security issues in the world. And by doing so, we're helping the world. And so for me, it's all about the full gamut of security, not just the network, but the network is understandably something that we are, we bring value to the ecosystem. And so for me, it's just, it's all of it. It's, it's where we're focusing. It's what, what we're doing in the community and how we're bringing to bear our customer needs as our own and how we're taking our needs and sharing it with our customers. And and sometimes non-customers. I mean, we do a lot of things for the community that is just for the good of the world. That's that's what I see. Yeah, sure. You guys used to have uh, uh, pretty innovative advertising campaigns where you where you were very outcome based, and you oh, and the only the only mention of technology, and as you described the solution. Whether it's uh, getting you know clean water to the residents of Vietnam, or you know some other contribution to a national security crisis, was the fact that you're called Cisco. Beyond that, there was no mention of product features, function, device number, any of that stuff. And it was great advertising because it, it really set the tone, right? I mean, it really said, "Hey, you know, this is our why, not our what." You know, and and so I'm I'm not sure why you went away from that, but uh, I I've used your advertising in the past as examples of uh, of, uh, of the right way to to communicate with your audience um, because that's actually all people care about. They don't actually care what you know how many corners you turn, how fast you turn. Let yeah, me let me say this sure. like and. In- whether people believe this is marketing or not, but our purpose is, and I've heard it said many times, and I see evidence of it, of how we do interact with the world, but it is to power an inclusive future for all. And that's based on the technology that we build or buy or invest in. And, you know, I've been here two years and I've pressure tested a lot of things and there are some things we do better than others. Right. But I'm really proud of of what we do and how we act boldly and ethically build, you know, products and and how we're looking for a sustainable future. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I believe we walk that walk. I've seen it. So, you know, it may sound like a tagline. It's not. It's still our uh, purpose. I, I've been a Cisco customer for a lot of years, Pam. So I I, I agree. I 
that's my feeling about the company as well. Oh, that's good to hear. Like my, uh, and, <laughs> and I am conscious of time here. So let, one final question I have is, uh, uh, you know, and you guys know I've been involved with this, our a recent project. I've interviewed 16 CISOs in the last few weeks. And uh, I think only one of them actually knew that Talos was, was a Cisco company. So it's a kind of a two-part question. How, how do you best integrate that emerging threat intel with with detection technology? And secondly, how do, how do we get we, how do you guys get uh, everybody to understand that you have this incredible uh, threat intelligence capability? So it is the best kept secret in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is the backbone of our product. So, and that to me is something that is incredibly important. So if you think about the signatures that we supply into our product line and, you know, it, it's just invaluable, right? And it's, it, it can be within seconds that they're, that they're implemented, but that to me says a lot. The reputation of Talos typically helps us uh, in terms of that exchange and that thought leadership that we we try to leverage from that group. Um, but you're right, it, it feels like the best kept secret, but it certainly is an advantage um, for Cisco and and our unique product line from that. Yeah, sure. from that uh, surely it surely must be. Dan, do you have closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll just, you know, it's, it's, we, we run into a lot. And, uh, you know, I think we'd be the first to say that, um, you know, we, we haven't spent the energy that we, we, we might need to on marketing that facet, that very important and large facet of our security portfolio, which of course is Talos. You know, there's a lot of people that don't know that we've had boots on the ground in the Ukraine well before the war. Uh, we were, Involved heavily with um, some of the initial uh, research on things like NotPetya and dark energy, and uh, you know we we knew that that Ukraine was being used as a test bed, you know, by nation state threat actors. And I think what's interesting to me is, and I, I you know, I'd asked this question at um, Steve at dinner the other night with a bunch of CISOs, and I said, how how important is attribution to you? And um, because you know I used to work for a Cisco competitor, and uh, you know, great company. And they, they kind of and I want to be very clear, some great people, they're doing some very good work, some good research. But we all know that they made their name on, you know, attribution, right? They, they, they and now yeah. several others have kind of piled on with, you know, calling out names in some some instances, funny names for the threat actors. Yeah. When I when I pulled the CISOs in the room, I said, hey, uh, how many how many of you really care about attribution? And they're like, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me whether it's China, Russia, North Korea, Syria, or Iran, or whomever that's doing this. It's being done. I, I have to. I'm. I'm really more concerned about business disruption. And and uh, you know, depending on the industry, I'm in maybe patient safety and that sort of stuff. So, you know, he says now there are others that are not necessarily security decision makers that might find that interesting. You know, well, China tried to get in. But I have to say that a lot of, I think, intelligence providers have made um, a, a name for themselves because they're they're very good at calling out the enemy. Um, I, I, don't, I just don't know how much value that has. So we've invested a lot of our time and energy on understanding the enemy 
understanding the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the enemy, and taking that telemetry and feeding it into our product so that the customers that buy our stuff will benefit from uh, those capabilities, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. No, that's, uh, that's exactly right on. So you guys have been great today. Thank you. Um, thanks for taking the time out. I know you've got a crazy schedule, both of you. And and uh, but I do I do appreciate it. I'm sure our audience uh, appreciated it as well. We learned, I think, some some uh, uh, informative stuff here today. And uh, and I'd love to have you guys back on maybe four or five, six months from now and kind of see where the world's gone since since uh, since today. And uh, but, it, you know, as you point out, Pam, it'll be an interesting ride one way or the other. Right. That's right. All right. So. Yeah. Once again, thank you, Dan DeSantis and Pam Lindemann, and uh, thank you to our audience for spending whatever it's been, 38, 40 minutes with us today, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Insights. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or send us an email at social at cybered.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybered.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, stay safe and secure, and we'll see you on the next episode of Cybersecurity Insights.